Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, and we'll be in Colossians chapter 4. So last Monday, uh, September 4th, it marked 129 years since Glover Cleveland signed a bill declaring Labor Day a national holiday. I've always found Labor Day kind of interesting. I don't know if you guys have or not. First, uh, because I feel like it's the only name of a holiday that you could totally uh, replace Mother's Day for. Like Mother's Day could easily be Labor Day because of, you know, being in labor. I was actually born on on Labor Day, so my mom was in labor on Labor Day. That happened. Um, the second reason I think that it's interesting is because, you know, it, it's kind of that holiday that marks, you know, hey, we're rounding third on the year. You know, weather's changing, like Marie said. Christmas, Thanksgiving is coming. I've always found it interesting. The third reason I find it interesting is really because of the history of Labor Day. If you guys aren't aware, it really came about because of two protests that happened in our country. The first protests were in 1886, where thousands of workers in Chicago, they were protesting long days of labor, and they wanted shorter work days. Uh, A few days into that protest, a bomb was actually set off, and it killed seven people. And that resulted in the formation of what's called May Day, and that's celebrated uh, in other countries across the world, uh, really just celebrating worker rights. But eight years later, after that happened, the Pullman Police Car Academy, or not Academy, company, decided to protest their 16-hour workdays as well, and they were, a union joined them, and that was basically the set of events that turned into Glover Cleveland saying, okay, now I need to go ahead and say Labor Day is a holiday. And then after that, kind of a a slow incremental change started to happen in the workforce and in in labor. One example would be when Henry Henry Ford, he doubled the wages and he went up to $5 an hour. And that led to his profits actually doubling. And that led to other companies kind of jumping in and bada bing, bada boom, you have an eight hour workday. So yeah, that's, that's a nice little history. And I share that with you guys to say that people tend to get a little bit worked up when it comes to the topic of work. It can be kind of a touchy subject. Everyone has an interesting relationship with work. It seems to me that there's usually two main views when we think of work that we have in America. The first view is kind of like, hey, work is lame. You don't really want anything to do with it. And and the way to spot somebody that has this view next time you're at work, just ask them how they're doing. If their response is either, yeah, just living the dream, or the second one, yeah, it's just another day in paradise. Yeah, that is the person that is falling under that first category. Um, it reminded me, actually, of a guy, he walked into work, and right when he walked into work, his boss came storming up next to him, and he said, you missed work yesterday, didn't you? And he looked at his boss, and he's like, well, no, not particularly. I didn't really miss work. So... So needless to say, there's kind of one category, views work is more of a a drag, but I also think there's a second group on the other end of the spectrum that views work as more of a drug that they really can't get enough of. Work is life. I live to work. You know, there aren't enough hours in the day to get things done. You can spot these people, you know, if if somebody's an aspiring YouTube influencer and they say things like, hey, you got to get up at 3 a.m. and you got to out-hustle every single person that's ever lived, kind of the David Goggins type of culture, that person usually falls into that second category, usually. And then there's kind of people in the middle, you know, you have a love-hate relationship with work. 
Uh, interestingly enough, though, the majority of people in our culture, according to some studies, they are moving in the direction of viewing work as part of their identity. Gallup actually showed that 55% of Americans do, in fact, derive a sense of identity when it comes to work. And Pew Research actually showed this year in a study that the basically the more money you make, the more likely you are to find identity in your job. So having said that, here's a question that I want to ask. Is work worth it? Or is work worthwhile? Is, is all the time that we spend at our jobs, which, by the way, next to the hours you spend asleep, the majority of your life is spent on the job or working. So is all of that time spent there, is it worth it? Is, is, is all of that time worth it? Does, does what I do at my job or my work or whatever I'm setting my hands to, is that stuff going to matter in the end? Because the reality of the situation is we're all going to die. That kind of throws a wrench in all of our plans, right? We're all going to die one day. What's going to happen to everything that we put our hands to? Solomon, the most wise and richest person who ever lived in Ecclesiastes 2.18 said this, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Why does he say that? He says that because he's looking at work and life and labor, toil, from a purely human perspective. And he's saying, you know what? It's all vanity. It's all going to amount to nothing because I'm going to die. And then the next guy, you know, he might be an awesome guy. He might not be an awesome guy. And it's just going to be left to him. That's a human perspective. But here in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look at God's perspective on work. We're going to look at God's Perspective. We're going to see that God has a, a, he really has a vibrant and a refreshing perspective when it comes to viewing the things that we put our hands to, that we set our minds to. And so the title of my message is, How Can Work Be Worthwhile? I want to answer that question this morning. Let's all stand as we honor the Word of God. And we'll start in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. It says this, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and ra rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who, he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. In chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You guys can be seated. And so the context we find ourselves here in Colossians chapter 3 through chapter 4 is really a familial context. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul declares that we need to live in light of our identity as being raised with Christ. We need to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in the rest of chapter 3, he's really starting to flesh out what exactly that looks like and what it looks like in daily life. He talks about how it is fleshed out in the life of the church, and then he talks about how it's fleshed out in the life of the family. And so he addresses dads, and he addresses husbands, and, and wives, and moms, and children. And then he addresses slaves. 
So slavery was very, very common uh, back in this day. Um, if basically half of the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman world, was enslaved. And so if you were a slave at that time, you basically had no rights of your own. You were owned by your master. In fact, your experience as a slave was completely dependent upon how good of a master you had. And so we're not going to go in depth on the subject of, of slavery in the Bible, but just realize that it's widespread. It was a cultural norm of the day. And realize that in the Bible, God never endorses or condones slavery. Actually, he puts parameters and he puts regulations on it, but he does not ever endorse it. In fact, the book of Exodus says if anybody buys or steals and chooses to sell another person, that person is worthy of death. And so that's important to understand. But when Paul is writing here, he is writing to people in a Greco-Roman society and culture. And it's just the reality that they're living in, that there's slaves and there's masters. And there's plenty of places in the New Testament where Paul actually says, hey, there's neither freed man nor slave. Everybody is one and has unity in Christ Jesus. And so that's who Paul is addressing. And he's the reason why it's a familial context is because a slave living with their master would have been living in the home. They would have been a part of the home. And so that's what Paul is, is, is getting at. That's the context that he's, he's really in right now. And so the application between the slave and the master is, for us, is the workforce. Our relationship with those in authority. And so let me just say that the workplace, this is a term that I'm going to use. I'm going to mainly be using that kind of vernacular this morning of our boss and jobs. But this really, this applies to doing your chores. This applies to doing your schoolwork, to raising your kids, all those different things. And so here's the main question. How can work be worthwhile? And I'm going to answer that question by showing two questions, two other questions from our text. The first question is this. How do we view authority in the workplace? How do we view authority in the workplace? The reality is that we're going to be under authority, someone's authority, in every season of our life. Whether that's our parents, our boss, a board of directors, the government, somebody is going to be in earthly authority over us. But here's the answer to that question, and then let me, I'll flesh it out afterwards. How do we view earthly authority? Well, we view earthly authority in light of heavenly authority. View earthly authority in light of heavenly authority. Notice that he mentions masters on earth in this text, but he later mentions to bosses, he says, hey, you have a master as well in heaven. Earthly authority and heavenly authority. And notice he mentions the word Lord five times in this passage. That word is the Greek word kurios. It mainly denotes the deity of Christ. It's the Old Testament word Yahweh. However, in different contexts, it could be a term of respect. It's sometimes translated sir. And in other times, like in our context, it's translated as master. And so Paul is using it here to talk about earthly lords, earthly masters, in contrast and in light of our heavenly lord, our heavenly master. He's bringing out the idea that Jesus is our boss. He's our master. He should be the Lord of every Christian's life. And by using this word this way, this is, this is what Paul is getting at. He's saying that we need to view earthly authority in light of heavenly authority. The earthly authority of our boss is to be in the shadow of our ultimate boss, who is Jesus. Our earthly boss, we should view him or her as in the shadow 
of our heavenly boss. His point in doing, it, in doing this is to show us the idea that what we do for and how we treat our earthly authority is connected and related to what we do and how we treat Jesus. There's a connection there. There's a connection to our performance at our job and our lives that we're living before Jesus. So he's saying, view earthly authority in light of heavenly authority because how we treat the former is connected to our treatment of the latter. But not only that, I believe Paul is also reminding them of their identity. Remember, he's addressing slaves, he's addressing masters. And the important thing to understand here, in our culture, especially in America, when we are tempted to view our, our job and what we do as our identity, I mean, think about it. Whenever you approach someone and meet someone new, it's, hey, what's your name? And then you ask what? Hey, what do you do, right? It's so ingrained in our society and our culture. And when Paul is addressing them as slaves and he's talking about the Lord and he's emphasizing it five times, he's reminding them that we have been bought with a price. We're not our own. So we might have earthly masters that we have to obey, earthly authority that we live under, but there is one ultimate authority. There is one supreme boss that we're to live under and we actually are owned by him. We're owned by Jesus, So don't let your job, don't let what you do define you. Don't let that be your identity. Rather, let your vocation be a place of expression of your identity in Christ. And so how many of you have have, uh, memories of those old 3D glasses, like the red and the blue? You guys know what those things are, those bad boys? You are not going to go see Shark Boy and Lava Girl or Spy Kids without those things, okay? You're, you're not, and th- that's kind of back in my day, and I feel old enough to say that now, so that's, that's awesome. But, you know, whenever you watch a movie in 2D, it's two-dimensional. That means the images are flat, you know, and they're, 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 they don't pop. But then you put on those 3D glasses, and then they are given depth, right? They have height and width, but when you put on the 3D glasses, they have depth now. There's a vibrancy to that 3D experience. And what Paul is saying is if we can view our time at work with the lens of our earthly authority, but also our heavenly authority, then it's going to make our experience at work and the things we do with our life, our career, our vocation more vibrant. It's going to give it depth. It's going to give it more meaning. That's what Paul is, is getting at. And so the first step in our work being worthwhile is understanding that there is a connection between what we do for our earthly boss and what we do for Jesus, our heavenly boss. We start doing that, then it's going to make it more meaningful. It's going to make it worthwhile. But that's just the first question. Here's the second question this morning. How can we have an appropriate work ethic? As a believer, how can we have an appropriate work ethic? One of the worst ways to hurt your testimony, to hurt my testimony as a believer, is to loudly claim Christ at your job, and then to live as if you didn't believe that. It's, it's unfortunate, and this is where it often takes place in the workplace. Bad attitudes and actions should not characterize us on the job no matter what we're doing. And so the answer to this question is really tethered to the answer of the last question, because if we realize that Jesus is our ultimate boss, it should change how and why we do what we do at work. So I see 
sit, uh, seven principles here. That's a lot, I know, but number of perfection, so there you go. I see seven principles here that are going to kind of characterize what should our Christian work ethic be. And principle number one is by working obediently. As a Christian on the job, we should be working obediently. Look what he says in, in verse 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Now, obedience, I think, when I'm reading this, I'm like, this is an odd word. Paul, you just use this to talk about children obeying your parents. This is interesting. But this is because of this, this heavenly, earthly dynamic that Paul is getting at. Slaves are to obey their masters, those that are in authority over them. And the idea of this word really just means to hearken under. And so it means to listen under. It means to listen underneath someone's authority and then to perform the actions that they're requiring. So the pretty, pretty simple truth here, some of these principles we're going to blast through, but Paul is saying, hey, at home, at school, at work, listen and obey. Do what, do what you're supposed to do. It's, it's pretty simple. But not just obey. Paul says, principle number two, we're to obey in all things. Obey in all things. So my second principle here is by working comprehensively. By working comprehensively in all things. Now, this is kind of hard because, you know, who in here hasn't had something at work that we, ha you know, were tasked with or whatever that we wanted to do? It's like, yeah, you know what, I'll do the important stuff, but I'm not going to do all things. Paul can't really mean all things, right? But I have uh, a crazy revelation. In the Greek New Testament, the word all actually means all. So, it's unfortunate for this verse, I realize that, but that is what... It means, Paul says, in all things, obey those who are in authority over you. And so, obviously, that doesn't mean, you know, if there's something illegal that we have to do or immoral or unethical. Yeah, that doesn't mean that we do those things. But the things that we're tasked to do were to do those things. And so, it's, it's just, it's common sense. We're to work comprehensively. I remember working for a cleaning company, and sometimes we would clean houses and some of these houses are, you know, gigantic, and there's, like, three specks of dust. And I'm like, why are we here, you know? Like, I guess I'm getting paid to be here, but these houses are so clean already. But you know what? That was my task. That was my job, and I tried to do it. wasn't very good at it, but I tried to do it. And so we're called to do that. We're called to obey the Lord comprehensively. All right, thirdly, by working sincerely. Paul says, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So Paul is now addressing the internal motives. He's addressing what is driving us on the job. He tells us that Christians, hey, if you're a Christ follower, you are to work with pure internal motives. Now, I'm sure this reminds you guys, Paul saying this, I'm sure it reminds you of, of the crazy guy on the news who is only killing people on train rides. You guys remember that? He had a locomotive. Anybody? Okay. Some of you guys will get that a little later. There it is. But seriously, Paul is, he's addressing the motives. He's addressing the intentions of our heart. And he says, we're not supposed to work to externally please men. That's important for us to understand. He says, here's how a few translations put it, actually. He says, not with eye service as men pleasers, 
but in singleness of heart, fearing God. One other translation. Do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Last translation. Don't work only while being watched as a people pleaser, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. You guys get the idea here? Pure intentions, pure motives. We're not supposed to be people pleasers when we're on the job. People pleasing is not a sickness to leverage. It is a sin that Jesus died for. And so we're supposed to be working with pure motives, not just when people are watching us, not to be just pleasing our bosses, but we're supposed to be working with sincerity of heart. And this doesn't mean that you have a great boss and you don't want to please him. It means that when you're, when he's not looking, that means you're not working. But when they are looking, you are working. That is what Paul is getting at. And so we need to make sure that in our heart, we are not working for man's approval. We're not working for man's approval and favor. We're working for God's approval on our lives when it's all said and done. We're supposed to work with sincerity in our heart. That word can also mean singleness. Singleness of heart. Focus. It means our devotion should sincerely and solely be to the Lord on our job. The definition of integrity that we've all, all heard, right? It's what you're doing when nobody's looking. To work with integrity. Heard about a really interesting experiment uh, at Harvard. There was an experiment done in the 1930s called the Hawthorne Studies. It was a nine-year experimental study on, on workers and worker behavior at Harvard Business School. One of the experiments was interesting, and it had to do with lighting up the work environments. And so basically what, what they would do is they would have a, a set kind of lighting in a work environment, and then they would increase the brightness of that environment. And what they found is that when they increased the brightness, people worked harder. And they were like, well, this is weird. Like, why are people working harder when it gets brighter? And well, someone came along and actually looked at the study, and, and the person who looked at the study kind of deducted that, you know, they're not just doing it because it's brighter in the room. They're doing it is because whenever that light gets brighter, they're thinking, oh, someone's eyes are now on me. And that's what caused them to work harder. And so here's the deal. That's called the Hawthorne effect. We should not, as a believer be living in accordance with the Hawthorne effect. When people are watching us, we work harder. But we should be, as the first point said, the heavenly effect, right? Heavenly authority. Jesus is always watching us. He's always observing our lives. Would I be working as hard with this task if Jesus was right next to me? That's what we should be considering. And so how can we have an appropriate work ethic? By working obediently, comprehensively, sincerely, and next, by working fearfully. Paul says, instead of being a people pleaser and doing things only when others are watching, be sincere and fear God. Fear the Lord. Referential fear. Respect for God. The idea here, again, is Jesus is our ultimate authority. And so we're going to keep moving. Next, by working heartily. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily. That word means exactly what it sounds like. It means to work hard. It means to labor it should go without saying, but us believers, we should be the hardest working people. doesn't mean we're going to necessarily be the most skilled at our job, but it doesn't mean that we are the hardest working. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Even the tasks that we don't want to do, max effort, 
100% because we're actually working for Jesus. And we'll see more on that in a second. Number six, we're to be working purposefully. Purposefully. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. As for the Lord and not for men. So remember, there's a connection between what we do for our earthly boss and our heavenly boss. And Paul is saying, if you're plumbing, if you're working on a farm, if you're in an office, whatever it might be, purpose in your heart that you're going to do that for the Lord. Purpose in your heart that you're going to do that for Jesus. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. So work for the Lord heartily. Work for him. I'd suggest that at the beginning of the day, just just dedicate that day. Dedicate everything your hands are going to be put to, to the Lord. And say, Lord, give me pure motives. I want to do this for you. I want to do this. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying. Work heartily. How do we have an appropriate work ethic? Lastly, and this is my favorite one personally, work expectantly. By working expectantly. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. All that's come before, working hard, being sincere, obedient, comprehensive in our tasks, all those things are to be done with this expectation, with this knowledge of something that's approaching. And it's the reality that anything that we do for the Lord in this life, we will receive a reward in the next life for it. That's what Paul is saying. And he puts a name to that reward. He says it is the reward inheritance. It's actually how one translation puts it. puts a hyphen right there and says the reward inheritance. Paul is talking about a reward inheritance. And this word inheritance, it, re- it just refers to a portion or a lot that is given to someone, that's allotted to someone. Typically in that day, it was a son or in the family. And so if a slave is hearing Paul's words right here, they're probably, ears are perking up and they're getting, you know, kind of excited because they don't have an inheritance. They don't have any rights. But Paul's saying, slaves, even your obedience to your masters, if done for the Lord, the Lord sees that and he'll reward that. That would have been really encouraging if you were a slave in a poor context listening to Paul's words. And so what exactly is the reward inheritance? Just jump into that really quick. It is something that God will give to every believer at the judgment seat of Christ. And caveat, every faithful believer. This inheritance that we can receive as a reward, it will affect how we spend eternity. Notice I didn't say where, because where you spend eternity is settled the moment you place your faith in Christ. But how you spend eternity is settled depending on your faithfulness to Christ. See, everybody's cup in the kingdom and in heaven is all full. However, we all have different size cups. You see, Paul goes on to say, God is not a God of partiality. The person who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong that he has done. And so how you spend eternity is dependent upon your faithfulness to Christ. And so there's different things in the Bible that encompass this inheritance. There's, there's crowns that are mentioned that we cast before the feet of Jesus. Paul actually said at the end of his life that I have fought the good fight, I finished the race. Therefore, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul, at the end of his life, was looking for the reward. 
that Jesus would give him. And because he would receive that reward, he gets to throw it back at the feet of Jesus, which brings more glory to Jesus. And that's the whole motive, is to glorify Christ. And so there's commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. There's other things we don't have time to, to go into. Jesus even said, hey, if you give somebody a cup of cold water in my name, guess what? You won't lose your reward. God loves to reward his children. He loves to do it. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 says, therefore we have as our ambition, this is the motive of Paul, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For reason, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, which is the same word for reward that Paul uses here, for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And Paul actually mentions fear, if you remember back in this context, fearing the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, the day that we're going to stand before him in our faithfulness is evaluated. Not heaven or hell, that's settled but our faithfulness to Jesus is evaluated, and that's when we will receive our approval rating on our life. Greater and lesser degrees of ruling and reigning with Christ, different types of things. It's a chief motivation of the Apostle Paul, and it should be in our lives. And it should be a chief motivation that drives us at our jobs, that drives us in the workplace. And so, just to close, how many of you have heard of the, or seen the, the show Undercover Boss. You guys know that show? Yeah. It's a pretty cool show. There's a boss that goes undercover, you know, like he's an employee. He works alongside, you know, this employee. Interestingly, they all have a sob story, so it's kind of interesting. But most everybody does anyway. Works really hard alongside a really hard em uh, working employee, trains this new employee, but hey, you know what? hats off. It's the CEO. They find out at the end, right? He reveals that, hey, I'm, I'm the person that was, you know, sitting with you, the person, new person you were training. Hey, guess what? Hats off. I'm the ultimate boss. And then what does that boss usually do? Usually rewards them for how committed they were, for how hardworking they were. And then they're, some people drop to their knees, they're bawling, they're crying. They're like, how... How in the world did I deserve that? I think that's a picture of what it's going to be like to stand before Jesus. He says, hey, that boss that was not good to you, or that boss that was good to you, hats off. When you worked for him for the purpose of working for me, you were doing it unto me, and I'm going to reward you for that. And it's eternal reward. It's not stuff that perishes, moth and rust. This world is fading away. The kingdom, eternity is real. Work will go on. Culture will go on. The best paintings haven't been paid and the best, you know, buildings haven't been built. But when Jesus returns, that's when real life will start for us. And so we should be focusing on the reward of the inheritance. Let's pray.